this podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult with your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is not Vanessa's voice. Vanessa, <laughs> Vanessa uh, is actually going to be on the receiving ends of my questions. This is the uh, this is Dr. Charles Tadros. This is the uh, uh, Not Your Doc podcast. Uh, this is our sixth session. Yeah, six. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, another gorgeous day here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vanessa. Thank you for uh, for agreeing to do this. Actually, you volunteered. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I appreciate uh, people throwing themselves on the sword <laughs> to, to further our, 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 pro- our progress here. I hope it's not subjecting people to too much. No, we'll try absolutely to not. Avoid that. <laughs> I've, I've been a physician for for thirty years, and Vanessa and I've been part of the ketamine clinic. I co-founded it about mm-hmm. six years ago with the Dr. Frugi. and Vanessa. Early on, and I don't remember when, was one of our clients, one of our mm-hmm. patients. Twenty seventeen. Okay, so we started really in 2016. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. so so Vanessa was early on when we still were newbies uh, with their ketamine clinic. And uh, so Vanessa's agreed to talk about some of her life experiences that led her to, to, to potentially benefiting from ketamine. Mm-hmm. And things have turned out fairly well. She's, she's come to hang out with us, to work with us, to help take care of more patients like her. And uh, so it's been a it's a true pleasure to be able to work with somebody who's not only bright but also uh, knowledgeable. Mm. Um, Vanessa, Thank you. you wanna you wanna? I, I normally do kind of a an interview with patients as if I were you know consulting with them on starting ketamine. But do you want just to start us with your with your story? Yeah, sure. So, um, gosh, my story. What? That's a big. That's a big open thing. Sure. Um, so basically, I was born and raised here in St. Louis. Um, I was born at the Baby Palace on Ballas, big mm-hmm. big St. John's. Um, my parents are actually transplants from the East Coast. They're from Long Island, New York, and they moved here about a year before I was born. And um, yeah, so super happy family, great, you know, great two married parents, Um when I was about five years old or so, my parents um, joined a church, mm-hmm. um, and that's been really wonderful for them and really transformed and brought a lot of good things to their lives. Yes. Um, as a kid, I was really uh, smart and precocious and, um, I don't know, talkative, kind of a know-it-all, uh, but in general, I kind of liked myself, like I thought I, w- I thought I was okay. Um, I didn't have, I had friends, but I was also teased, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so let's see in about, um, in middle school, we moved to Springfield, Missouri, um, to actually, uh, help plant a, another location of the same church that we were affiliated with in mm-hmm. Springfield, Missouri. And so, um, you know, during that time, um, it was it was really just me and my brother. There weren't a lot of other kids in the church. Um, and so, you know, it was all, you know, friends at school. And um, I got to be a lot more independent, I would say, for the first time. So um, the, the like the upbringing in the church, I would describe it like it was a very emotionally intense upbringing. Mm-hmm. A lot of good and positive things, but also a lot of 
a lot of rules and a lot of kind of black and white teaching about, you know, what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think I definitely had kind of a, a, a tendency as a, a child and as a person toward perfectionism, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, being raised in kind of this, uh, you know, in this tradition that really encourages perfectionism and to, to strive for perfection and mm-hmm. for to strive towards righteousness and goodness and obedience, um, you know, that was that really occupied all of the space in my brain. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I had I had really, really high expectations of myself. Um, anyway, am I? Yeah, no, it's fine. This is, this, is, this, is, this happened to be uh, this is evangelical. Yeah, book. evangelical Christian. Yeah, gotcha. so definitely describe it as that non-denominational. And whenever people talk about evangelical and non-denominational, can you mm-hmm. can you tell? I know a little bit, but would you tell me what, what how you do, yeah. see them? Yeah. So them? basically, the um, the type of non-denominational Christianity our church practices was sort of an offshoot of churches of Christ, traditional mm-hmm. churches of Christ. Um, so not Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and not affiliated with other denominations either. So not Baptist, not Presbyterian. Um, I would say we came out of the Reformation movement, if you want to put it that way. Okay. Um, and the the highest priority was on you know living our lives in accordance to what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Um, this is doing good works, being a good person, doing good works in order to get closer to God, closer to Christ. Yeah, That's the, basically, the yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the goal was to to live like Jesus and mm-hmm. to, you know, model our lives, um, you know, after how Jesus would behave. Um, and, you know, the Bible is full of commandments, right, about mm-hmm. um, sure. how, you know, respecting people, loving people, giving, not being prideful. Um, and so, you know, when we were being, I keep saying we, my brother and I, Mm-hmm. We're, um, you know, in this together. Uh, there was lots of instruction, not just on like, you know, a- as a kid on how you're what's good behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but the what is good behavior was sort of defined and reinforced by what the Bible says and yes. what the expectations of our behavior were from the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for for some kids that worked out really well for them, for me, it felt um, really pretty pretty heavy like the stakes were extremely high for um you know stepping out of line or when would you say that you kind of started feeling that that burden of being perf- closer to perfection or mm-hmm. trying to achieve perfection when do you know when do you think you noticed it as a youngster i think i was around like 10 or 11 years mm-hmm. old probably when i really started to look at my behavior and identify it as sinful. Mm -hmm. So like if I got in an argument with my brother, I knew that it was sinful to fight with him or to not be loving towards him. And if I was disrespectful to my parents, I knew that I was breaking a commandment by not honoring them. And how, how do you, how do you redeem yourself um, when you do break a commandment or whenever you're not as good as you could be or as perfect as you should be? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, um, you know, confession to God and apologizing to him for my sin, um, apologizing to the people that I sinned against. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in our faith tradition, you know, uh, basically you had to be baptized when you were of an age old enough to be able to understand sin and be able to commit your life to, you know, following Jesus that... Mm -hmm. um, that that was kind of like the 
the point of salvation. So all of those, all of the, a way that it was explained to me was kind of like all of those sins as a younger person before I got baptized kind of like stacked up against me and I had to get baptized in order for that slate to be wiped clean. I see. Yeah. Uh, and you started with with kind of your upbringing and and your and your faith and your f- family's faith mm-hmm. uh, because you see it as linked to what what happened next. Yeah, so um, we were living in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, I, I was very very close with a lot of the campus students that were part of our church. Like the church was met on on. It was called SMS at the time, but Missouri State University. Yeah, we met on their sure. campus, and there were a lot. You know, the campus ministry was a really important part of the ch- part of the church. Mm-hmm. And my closest peers in age were not the you know ten year olds below me. It was the you know eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty one, twenty two right. year olds in the campus ministry. So I spent a lot of time um, building relationships with those kids and spending time with them. I say kids now; they seemed like totally grown adults to me when I was 13, 14 years old. And you shared, you used the buildings there or you shared buildings there? Yeah, we would meet at the student union Uh and various, you know, meeting rooms. Um, But I was, you know, spending a lot of time with those students. And so I had, you know, riding cars with them and go to sleepovers and um, hang out with them. And um, yeah, so there was definitely, I think my Mm -hmm. parents had a really high level of trust in in that group as well, too. Um, So... You know, when I was 13 or so, the um, actually the person who was leading the campus ministry at the time decided to abuse me sexually mm-hmm. over a few uh, occasions, and um, that completely rocked my world. It was very, very confusing, very, very um, frightening, uh, and certainly it it did not compute with what no. with what I expected or what I uh, wanted to experience or thought I would experience in the church. Um, obviously, bringing that to my parents, it was almost like unbelievable, mm-hmm. you know. So, so yeah, there's no framework. There's no. There's nothing that nothing that readies anybody for something that happens like this, especially whenever you're 13. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you were able to go straight, which, how long did it take for you to go to your parents? You know, I actually, I, I pretty much went straight to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was like the third or fourth occasion. And I re- I told my mom, I was like, this is happening. And she was like, what? Yeah. And it was, you know, so now looking back, you know, as an adult, looking back on it now, I totally understand like why my parents were so confused and why they thought I might've been confused. Yes. Um, with what had happened, but um, I was definitely not confused no. about what happened, and it was definitely abuse and non-consensual and wrong. Um, yeah. And so many people, so many people, sometimes takes them decades to understand what happened to them to actually see it in adult eyes and yeah. be able to name it and actually finally be able to get help. And it's typically years, if not decades, later. Uh, what do you think was allowed you to be so? readily open to talk to your parents and Mm. those are the first people you went to yeah those are the first people i told for sure i think um you know along with you know with my upbringing in the church i had a really intense sense of right and wrong yes and this completely violated Mm -hmm. my understanding of what love looks like what christianity looks like i knew jesus would never treat me this way so for someone who represented themselves to be a leader um I was so angry and indignant, and I think that's what just 
you know, mm-hmm. and I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't done anything to ask for it or suggest it would be okay or anything like that. So That's I was 13. So I guess it was, I was just old enough to really have a grasp on that. And, and you know this, and the rest of us know this now that we're adults and in the health per, uh, health profession, a lot of people believe it is their fault, or yeah. at least they're, they're the perpetrator the, the, uh, told them it was their fault, mm-hmm. or they caused it, or they led that person to act in that way. Sure. And and you had your sense of, uh, your ability to talk to your parents, your sense of right and wrong, and you're feeling not guilty that it was, anything, it was not triggered by you, it was right. not condoned by you. Is a humongous, humongous different than than what we typically see in people who've been sexually molested. Yeah. So I think but, there there was a lot of that. I mean, the the emotions were very confusing and very mixed, yes. right? Like, I I did feel like it was my fault, and I constantly was thinking about okay. what I could have done differently. Um, but at the same time, I just knew fundamentally that it was, you know, just on its face yes. wrong and that it didn't, it wouldn't really have mattered if I had done anything differently. Yeah. How did your parents respond? Um, they, they listened. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of confused at first, you know, and trying to make sure that I was sure about, mm-hmm. you know, what happened and, um, yeah, but uh, they, you know, pretty much right after that, they, you know, reached out to church leadership and, um, you know, that escalated to them, you know, confronting the guy and, you know, he admitted it to my dad in front of the church leader. And then, you know, they, my parents got more advice and they decided to get law enforcement involved. Yes. And um, that, so, you know, that was a, going through that whole process was pretty traumatizing and kind of a a story for another podcast. But it was you know it it stretched on the legal process for that. I, it was thirteen when it happened. The trial and sentencing didn't happen until the end of my junior year in high school. So I was seventeen was at that time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, which like all so all of that turmoil coincides with you know the emergence of my mental health issues for right. sure. Yeah. I mean, this is dramatic. And you know that a lot of people who've been sexually assaulted never face, never confront, yeah, never, call, never ask for legal help, et cetera, yeah. and don't go to court, et cetera. So yeah. it's, uh, it's a totally different track than, than, than you took. Uh, but, and, and tell me, just jumping mm. ahead, you think that it was important that you, that you spoke up, you'd support that you went through the, 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 uh, the legal, legal system? Yeah. I mean, looking back on it now, I, I did feel vindicated. Yes. You know, I I did have to testify in front of my abuser multiple times. Mm. Um, my parents were not allowed to be in the room with me. I did have to be cross-examined by his horrible, disgusting lawyer. Yes. I, I did have to listen to him testify that I provoked it and um, was being suggestive or whatever. And that was, you know, incredibly traumatizing. But miraculously literally miraculously and that it was a moment where i felt like you know okay i think maybe god is with me on this that um the so the defendant decided to do a bench trial instead of a jury trial he thought he would have a better chance of being found not guilty in front of a judge than in front of a jury so um typically after the judge hears a case like this they take the case under advisement before Mm -hmm. they issue a verdict Mm -hmm. yes and um the judge actually didn't take it under advisement. He actually ruled from the bench right right then and there. Yeah. 
And he said, you know, the the facts in this case speak for themselves. It is very clear to see who is lying and who is telling the truth in this situation. Um, I don't remember a lot more verbatim what he said, but that was definitely the gist of it. And then he sentenced him to seven years. Yes. Um, Obviously, you know, that he didn't end up serving all that, but still it was a... uh, it was a triumphant moment for me, yeah. even though there was still a lot of wreckage and damage from, you know, the the whole process. But I do ultimately feel proud that I went through that and really grateful for how my family and friends supported me through it so that I could be strong enough to survive it. And horrific uh, for any age, but um, for how it turned out as best as it could have Absolutely. turned out. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell me how, what other mental health issues besides this by itself would be a lifetime's worth of trauma. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, pretty much immediately, you know, my my parents were trying to get me connected. There, there's like a uh, like a victim support services in in Springfield, Missouri, that had mm-hmm. you know counselors for children. I was you know an adolescent at this time, so like 13, 14. Yes, they had counselors to talk to, social workers. Um, I did, you know, some trauma therapy at that time. Um, my, like, I things were kind of okay for me for that next year that we lived in Springfield. So it all happened in, I was 13, like in seventh grade and then in eighth grade. Um, you know, I still was doing great in school and, um, you know, had friends and everything. Uh, I I had my own boyfriends that year for the first time, which was like a, huge shock I think for my parents mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. De- you know not not people that we went to church with and that was kind of not condoned all that kind of stuff but in general I was kind of able to hold it together mm-hmm. um and then we moved back to St. Louis in this in the summer between eighth and ninth grade so um ninth grade was okay again had a boyfriend parents weren't happy with it um and then really it was my sophomore year where I was like I, you know I, I've always been extremely high achieving perfectionist. I took mm-hmm. every single honors class. I did, you know, orchestra and choir and drama, mm-hmm. debate, extracurricular t- activities. It was just like everything all at once. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it was really in, you know, after the winter break of my sophomore year in high school where I just like spent a month in bed and couldn't couldn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's when I first saw a psychiatrist and yeah. I want, I want to just deviate. I want to come back to kind of where you left off just mm-hmm. now. Um, one of the one of the signs and symptoms we see in youngsters is uh, behavioral changes. Yeah. Whenever some sort of trauma it doesn't have to be sexual, some sort of trauma, behavioral changes, uh, changes in in grades, changes mm-hmm. in uh, 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 hygiene, changes in in uh, in friendships. Um, irritability, anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a bunch of different things that look like oppositional and defiant. Yes. Uh, yeah. And some people will attribute it to drugs or something else. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes start with some sort of trauma. Mm-hmm. And other things are added on top of it, but that's what we end up seeing. The parents don't know what to do or right, they're, they're exhausted. Yeah. And uh, so I'm glad that you you got the appropriate help for for the appropriate time. Did you recognize that you were having a hard time as soon as, you, as, soon as everything collapsed from going 100 miles an hour to... Not being able to get out of bed, did you know something? Yeah, I mean, like, I kind of, I don't know. There, there was this, like, there was this rupture that happened, sort of, like, after 
like what happened to me with the the abuse that I suddenly felt like very I said before that I liked myself like when I was a kid Mm -hmm. I liked myself and then this switch flipped where all of a sudden I was like I'm a mess Mm -hmm. I'm a complete aberration like I cannot meet my parents expectations of me I can't meet my own expectations of myself Mm -hmm. Um, I like, how could God ever love me because I'm such a mess and mm. keep sinning. And yes. so, um, I mean, I, I didn't know enough about, you know, trauma responses and mental illness to be like, oh, this might be depression or, mm-hmm. or something more. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I, I very much internalized it as, as self-hatred. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, um, um, People forget that uh, you start off with one or two problems earlier in life, whatever, ADD or mm. anxiety or trauma or, or parents breaking up or sick relative that lives with you and everybody has to take care of them. And then it and then it compounds over time, sometimes years. So sometimes you can't make the connection between the start and what's happening right. today. Um, um, were you still, were your, was your family, or you, were you still part of the church or going to the church when you were in Springfield and then back in St. Louis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Important part of your stability for your family, the glue that helps? Completely. I think um, we, from my, if memory serves me correctly, I think we took a little bit of a break from Springfield, or at least I didn't have to go mm-hmm. for a little while. Um which was really good because it was such a small, yes. close-knit group of people. And there was, you know, a certain faction or whatever that sided with my yes. abuser, you know. Yes. Um, so that would have been really totally re-traumatizing to have to be subjected to that. But as soon as we moved back to St. Louis, yeah, right back into the teen ministry, right back into, you know, being um, at church here in St. Louis. And, um, you know, and so all of the you know, kind of those, the the parenting choices that came out of, you know, having a pretty, um, I don't want to say rigid, but mm-hmm. relatively strict, mm-hmm. you know, set of expectations of behaviors. Like I was bumping up against all of that, you know, in addition to going through trauma and also just being a teenager yes. and having a developing brain. Yeah, we forget that uh, no, normal teen, <laughs> right. even the best of nor- uh, of teen uh, years, are uh, uh, look hectic from the outside and yeah. maybe feel hectic from from inside from inside the youngster's uh, mind. But yeah, yeah absolutely. It's sometimes hard to differentiate what's normal, pulling away from family and mm-hmm. hanging out more with friends, and versus you know signs of depression or yeah. something else going on. Yeah. yeah, and it was you know, and on top of that too, there was just always that. Um, you know, I was a perfectionist and a people pleaser. I desperately wanted my parents' approval, mm-hmm. and I desperately wanted the church's approval, mm-hmm. and um, I, which I thought reflected God's approval of yes. me. Um, and I just felt like I was, you know, just never, ever, ever going to see that again. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I was going through these cycles of just like. Okay, screw it. I don't need their approval, and I don't need I, right. I don't need any of this stuff. So then I would like act however I wanted, right. um, which was all pretty much within the normal range of normal teenage normal, behavior. Right. But then it would like the pendulum would swing the opposite way, and I go to church camp for the summer, for example, or have some yes. sort of like intensive talk with, a, a you know, and a, and a like a, a mentor at at church, mm-hmm. and then I would like fall to pieces, you know, with with guilt and and yes. shame and. 
Yeah, so, kind psych, of brokenness, yes. you know, um, that would make me want to just like, okay, I'm going to repent of everything and change everything right. and go back to being very, very devout and doing all the right things. And mm-hmm. and then as soon as I would like mess up and find that wasn't sustainable, right. then the pendulum would start swinging back in the opposite direction. We, so it was really see, chaotic. Yeah, we see that swinging between I, I promise, you know, you know, I promise to stop whatever mm. or, or start whatever. And swinging it all the way, you know, dramatic changes, yeah. uh, not not small incremental right. changes, but dramatic, which are hard to maintain, hard yeah. to achieve, and hard to maintain. But yeah, um, had, did you end up seeing? Did you does your did, did your faith at that time allow you to see physicians, mental health professionals? Did you and you said and when did you start trauma, some trauma recovery, or mm-hmm. eventually for the depression? Yeah. So the. Um, Trauma recovery mainly happened like within the first year or so when we were first living in Springfield. When we first moved to St. Louis, my parents connected me with a a Christian counselor. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, she was very nice, but I just remember finding it completely unhelpful, Mm -hmm. Um, especially because there was all this complex emotion going on within me that was like, okay, if God loves me and I do the right things to serve him and I follow the rules of the Bible. Like, why would he let this horrible thing happen to me? It was difficult for me to trust her approach to how I should work through some of these issues. How bad things happen to good people. Right. Um, But then, you know, after not, uh, you know, not being able to get out of bed and go to school, then I saw a a psychiatrist that um, another family's kid in the church was also seeing as Mm -hmm. well. And so I got a, Depression diagnosis at that point. I was 16, and they started me on Lexapro. Mm-hmm. No other diagnoses at that time. No other diagnoses at that time, yeah. J- jumping back, well, do you remember what the trauma is so I, we can describe it? There mm-hmm. are many different techniques for trauma recovery, memory reconsolidation. Can you, do you remember what it was like, to the trauma recovery? Can you, does it, there you was like a, the techniques? Or? There was a workbook uh-huh. that I went through. Um, I It was like... I don't know, it was this big, thick, yellow workbook. And so I guess it was kind of modeled on, like, dialectical behavioral therapy. Okay. So lots of writing prompts, um, lots of identifying uh, what sensations I was feeling. I was having panic attacks mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so identifying those things um, and journaling, th- those are the major things. It's it's a little bit fuzzy at this point what yeah. the specifics were. So just to give a big, thick book to somebody who was... 13 at the time yeah, or yeah, that's you know yeah. home, home homework yeah, and uh, yeah. for, uh, for journaling there were there was definitely not a lot of integration right. you know between the stuff I was doing in that book and the things I actually talked about with a the therapist so yeah. we should talk about that dialectical mm-hmm. behavioral therapy is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy initially it was for personality disorders but uh, borderline personality disorder treatments but it's been it's it can be used for other tech uh, other diagnoses and um, integration is the ability to bring together uh, your, in this case, thoughts, feelings, sensations, mm-hmm. um, uh, to integrate them together into something that makes sense uh, to you as a, as a patient, as a client, right. and helps you progress, help you understand where you are and what happened, and helps you progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Um, did the Lexapro work? The Lexapro worked amazingly for like a year. And what, what, what did you notice? What, what, what was happening that, that showed that it was working for mm-hmm. you? I... My energy was restored. Um, I was much less irritable. The mm-hmm. irritability was one of the scariest and most frustrating things for me because mm-hmm. I would be, from one minute to the next, I would just lash out at my parents and yes. say something horrible and be angry. And then the next minute, I would just like, 
dissolve into a puddle crying because I felt so guilty and right. horrible that I had behaved that way and that I was that I hurt them and yes um, so it really helped with the irritability and with my ability to sleep and not feeling like I had to just sleep solid for weeks so yeah. I mean those were it was really effective at first you yeah had lots of what we call vegetative symptoms uh, yeah. that that you didn't that you didn't want you lost energy yeah. you lost interest in things for sure um, so it was really difficult for me to go to school I just dreaded going to school tearful in the morning yes, type stuff absolutely and, and, all uh, of that. And hard to get motivated for anything, even yep. responsible, even fun things like mm -hmm. going out with friends and things like yep. that. So you had um, practically all this. Did you have weight, cha weight changes? No weight changes at the time. Okay. Um, were you? Yeah. Uh, this is something we use. Where you ask youngsters, mm. were you were you self mutilating, cutting? Were you having any eating eating issues? They, I, yeah, I, I had been cutting some in. Mm -hmm. uh, that started in Springfield, I think, and it was kind of continuing on and off through high mm -hmm. school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any eating, uh, body image or eating issues? Not, not then, no. Okay. We should define cutting or self, it's terrible word, self-mutilation. Yeah, self-mutilation is, is cutting and, mm -hmm. and if it, I want to make sure nothing traumatizes yeah, you, re-traumatizes okay. you. What, what, what was cutting, what, what did, how was it, what did you use? How, what, what, what's the, what's the feeling that led, led you to, uh, reaching for cutting? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I I snuck a little razor blade from my dad's workbench, and mm -hmm. I would literally sterilize it with alcohol before I used it. I mm -hmm. mean, I was very a rule follower, perfectionist, mm -hmm. very fastidious about the way that I did it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I would just make these, like, little superficial cuts um, mm -hmm. kind of in the same spot under my watch line on, mm -hmm. my, on my left hand or left arm. It um, – it gave me a sense of release. Mm -hmm. um, from what felt like an unbearable amount of internal pressure, mm -hmm. uh, internal em emotional pressure, mm -hmm. um, and also a little bit of control. Like mm -hmm. if I was gonna experience pain or bleed, I was gonna be the one to do it to myself. Mm -hmm. No one else was gonna make me mm -hmm. go through that. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of an, an exercise in reclaiming control. I want because it was we, dysfunctional, but it, it that's how it helped me, you know. I want to because people listening sometimes misinterpret what we're saying. Uh, um, so cutting or self mutilation, people can pick, uh, people can scratch, can, mm -hmm. people can hit, hit them, they hit their heads, mm -hmm. bang their heads, um, uh, all forms of, of uh, self harm, and. Typically, it's not because people are trying to commit suicide. Correct. They may be suicidal, but that's not the way that they're trying to achieve mm -hmm. it. It's a type of internal tension mm -hmm. that needs to go somewhere, and you can release it through through any of these techniques. Some of these techniques. Mm -hmm. The problem is it doesn't release it, and it goes away and stays away. Mm -hmm. It unfortunately re reinforces uh, the, the the feedback loop in terms of any tension. Um, this could be with eating disorder, or it could be with cutting. Mm -hmm. That any tension you can you can control and release uh, that tension. Through through self manipulation, whether it's self harm or, or or eating or binging and purging, etc. Mm -hmm. So people sometimes are sh others who look at it sometimes are shocked. They're afraid. They call nine one one. They right. go to the emergency room, um, and sometimes it's interpreted uh, as 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 trying to commit suicide. Correct. But typically, yeah. it's not. I don't want to mis I don't want to mislead anybody, uh, but typically it's not. 
but it's something that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. uh, appropriately and aggressively. Uh, we see it in everybody who's from people who are depressed, people who are anxious, people mm-hmm. OCD, people mm-hmm. who've been traumatized. Um, uh, so we see it in, in people who have eating disorders. So we see uh, that uh, over like we tend to see it more with women, young young women than men. Mm-hmm. But actually, in the last few years, we've seen it uh, actually with men too. Uh, so. Uh, so it's a it's a for people that not to freak out, but to seek immediate help. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, um, so good. I should say too that some of these I so I guess this was like during the mid early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Some of these behaviors were kind of um, glorified on like early uh, social media platforms. I did not know. Yeah. So like MySpace and Zanga, there was kind of there's sort of like these like cutting groups basically where people would just like. It wasn't pictures yet. These were like, you know, like text posts about talking about it and songs about it, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't like, I guess that's how I sort of knew about the behavior as an option. But um, I mean, yeah, even with early social media, some of that stuff was available then. Yeah. And that's always a question if we house if we put somebody with intensive outpatient or inpatient mm-hmm. if we house people who are depressed together do they, they improve each other or don't if right. people are suicidal you house them together or you have them in in and group together mm-hmm. do they reinforce or same thing with drink drinking and drugs if you house them with other people who have drinking or drug uh, related issues you know and so that's always a challenge uh, uh to say oh my gosh you know this seems to be reinforcing the behavior rather than helping sure. it because they're group with other people that do have the same behaviors, right. same diseases, same diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ha- what happened? Uh, so Lexapro and I want to, I don't want uh, to, yeah. tell me, you know, if you can, and I'd, we'll never be able to summarize all the important factors sure. uh, for your life, but I want to make sure that, that we hit the high points that led you to, you know, eventually here with us. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, in the... So I guess it was the next year, the next, so it worked from like middle of sophomore year to like really wasn't helping at all by uh, the middle of junior year and of you were high taking, school. you were taking it regularly. I was taking it absolutely regularly not, every single day. Not using substance like pot or nothing alcohol. Else. Okay, no, nothing you. else. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes we call that SSRI poop out. Yeah. Um, I, I occasionally did drink when mm-hmm. I, you know, was able to lie my way into mm-hmm. getting to a party sure. but it wasn't like wasn't something regular I was doing mm-hmm. um but yeah so I mean in that junior year that was kind of like culminating with the trial and um you know just everything going on the you know the Lexpro not helping anymore I actually had a suicide attempt that December yes, yes. um and then uh you know, started a, a long process of trying different drugs then after yes. that. Yeah. So I was, I was inpatient for a while at um, St. Luke's, I think. Inpatient, um, inpatient, uh, often, especially if you're at any age, but certainly if you're a youngster, uh, it's, it's kind of scary, it's kind of scary stuff. Uh, yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah. It was for sure terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, and when I had to do it again a few years later, even as an adult, it was also terrifying yes. too. Yeah. Um, the process, unfortunately, modern psychiatry uh, is still an old-fashioned process of trial mm-hmm. and error yeah. with medications and mixing and matching medications, mixing and matching doses. 
the, the, the physician listens for signs and symptoms and tries to pick a drug that take care of those with the right type of adverse uh, side effects or adverse mm. effects. So if, the, if you're losing weight, you can't sleep, they can right. pick something that helps with depression and helps you gain weight and helps you sleep. So there's a mix and match, but it's, but, but it's still an art. There's some science, but still lots of art. I know people talk about all sorts of fancy testing, uh, genomic testing, right. ph- pharmacogenomic testing, and, and brain scans of, of different varieties. And none of them are probably as good as, as a good uh, history and physical and somebody who knows you from a mental health uh, phys- uh, practitioner who knows you, a psychiatrist or psychotherapist. Absolutely. Um, so how did how did the different medicines, I we won't go over all of them, yeah. how did, did they work for a little bit, never worked? Yeah, so, um, so I guess in that time period, I guess I was like turning 17. The, the the psychiatrist I had been seeing was, I think he became ill and I had to switch to someone else in mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I, so I switched to this new psychiatrist who is, um, he's actually still my psychiatrist oh, now. Okay, wonderful. But he was an absolute technician with mm-hmm. medicines. And that was like, he helped me buy in to mm. the belief that there is a combination of things out there that's going to help you feel better. Yes. Um, so I trusted him mm-hmm. to take me on that journey. Um, yes. We tried old drugs, you know, old tricyclics. Uh, I was on Zyprexa. I was on, mm-hmm. you know, Trazodone. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried brand new drugs, name brand things that, you know, I needed, you know, um, coupons for to pay yes yes. samples and coupons absolutely we tried um you know atypical antipsychotics we tried Mm -hmm. ssris we tried snris Mm -hmm. we tried all kinds of different things for sleep Mm -hmm. um and yeah it was it was a long journey but um and probably I've, i've been on my current like cocktail and doses for about four years now yes so it took a long time really to to find what works well, there there were you know periods of time where right. something would work well for like six months to a year. Yes. Um, but sometimes the the dosings would max out, and we just kind of you know run its course there and have to switch I mean, to something and, new. And you and I talk to patients all the time mm-hmm. who are frustrated with their medications. Yeah. That's why they come see us for a ketamine clinic, and we claim that we we're not there for cure. We're, mm-hmm. we're et cetera, et cetera. We don't pl- don't promise them that they're going to be able to ever come off their pills or oracles. Sure. They still need to see their psychiatrist, mm-hmm. um, and and the patience that you had was uh, is atypical, as you know. Most people, after several rounds of medicines, will stop showing up for their appointments, yeah. or stop refilling their medicines, sure. uh, cancel, don't not make an appointment on the way out the door mm-hmm. so, for follow up, or cancel their appointments, and they're kind of lost to follow up until things come to a head again. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. months to years later. Um, but you were stuck. At, what, what 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 do you think? What do you think played into your sticking it out for so long until you got on a regimen that seemed to work for you? I mean, I think it was a couple of things. But the first part was just my natural, my personality. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, a rule follower mm-hmm. and a perfectionist. And yes. if someone, if an authority figure tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, also, I was really afraid of what I might be capable of if I was completely unmedicated. I didn't want to... The alternative was worse, right? Yes. The, um, so I, you know, I I just made a commitment that I'm going to take my medicine every single day as it's prescribed, and you know, I I really trusted my doctor that he was going to listen to me. Yes. Um, 
and that he would, because he knew that I was compliant and that I showed up to my appointments, that I could be honest with him about side effects and if I felt it was working. And because we had that trust built up, he would make adjustments based on what I reported back to him because he could trust that I was doing everything else in my power, you know? How long would you live with a side effect? Uh, would you stop a medicine, then call him? Would you wait until the next office was? How long would you live with a... Because I think all these are... I mean, you're an ideal patient. Uh, number one, which too bad you have to be a patient. Number two, since you are a patient, you're an ideal patient. Um, and any physician would love to have somebody like you who'd stick out for months to years to, for medication adjustments. It's well, funny, and I'm I'm the the perfect the perfect mental health patient. Well, good. We'll take we'll take it. You're still uh, as you Matches heard me say, you're still, big time. you're still here. High achieving. Yeah, you're still here. So your perfectionism actually works in your favor it in this did. case. Your stick to itiveness sure. and grit and perfection works works in your favor. How long would you live with a side effect if it gave you dry mouth or yeah. or blurred vision or whatever sure. whatever what kind of side effects i mean there were certain things that were certainly more tolerable than other things mm-hmm. i think and it's there were so many medicines that's hard right. for me to you remember like what was doing what i mean if a medicine was making me vomit yeah. i would pretty much call right away right, and be like hey this isn't working right. sometimes eat changing the time of day or eat, taking with food or not with food yes. would help with that um, I, I remember getting pretty bad akathisia from a, a couple of things and that's, you know, shaking tremors basically. So let's make sure. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's a horrific side effect and sometimes it become, can become permanent yeah. in some people, uh, even if they stop their medicines. Right. Akathisia can happen with or without medicines, but certainly it happens most commonly in psychotropic medicines, uh, antidepressants, anti, uh, and, uh, and antipsychotics mm-hmm. are, are the big ones. Um, and, um. Um, it's a it's a terrible feeling. It's right. like restless legs all over your body. Yeah, absolutely. So you got the EBGBs, yeah. the creepy crawlies all over yep. your arms, your torso, your mm-hmm. legs. You got to stand up and pace. Yes, uh, these people are miserable. They yeah. can't even sleep sometimes because they got the EBGBs inside. Right. Uh, but anyway, yeah. And I was I was on a medication for a little while that caused that, but we kind of dialed in the dose to where it would keep it in line. And I remember going, you know, see my psychiatrist like every four weeks or so, and he would yes. look, he would test and, yes. and see what the akathisia was like. So. He was very fastidious that way. So, I mean, there there were other things that I could just sort of deal with. Um, sweat excess excessive sweating was mm-hmm. definitely a common side effect. You had weight gain, if I remember correctly. For yeah. So I I started something called Seroquel, which I'm actually still on. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. at that time, um, I was on a pretty good dose of it, a pretty yes. kicking dose, and in maybe I'd say maybe. Over the course of like two or three months, mm-hmm. I think I put on forty to fifty pounds. That's I mean, dramatic, it was yeah. a dramatic, dramatic gain. Yes, and um, and that was one. I didn't. I honestly didn't realize how much it was. I yes. wasn't. I wasn't in the habit of weighing myself regularly, but I knew that my clothes weren't fitting right, and yes. um, so I think I saw him maybe like once or twice over the course of that time period, mm-hmm. and I had like. Finally, I weighed myself. Actually, I think I weighed myself when I came into the clinic for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And realized like what the number was. I was like, whoa, we need to talk about this. And so honestly, coming coming down to a very low dose and then coming off of that for a while. I mean, it was it was dramatic the way it affected my my metabolism pretty metabolism pretty much bounced back good not everybody's does as you know yeah Uh, it took work but I was I was able to lose some of the weight, you know, yeah. And I'll I'll travel all the way kind of closer to the time you started ketamine. Why mm. did you start ketamine back in 2017? Yeah. So um, let's see. So I you know I had a I had a really hard time like right out of 
right out of high school, um, you know, had a scholarship to the school of my dreams and, and went there mm-hmm. for a year and had a complete meltdown. You mm-hmm. know, it was out of state and everything and had to come home. The meltdown was depression or anxiety or panic? De- or? Uh, depression, suicidality, um, actually. And so I was inpatient for a little while then. I see. Yes. Um, and so when I came back home to St. Louis and I was seeing my psychiatrist again, he was like, I really think you have bipolar. Ah. Um, and so that's when uh, I got a bipolar type 2 diagnosis. So that means that I, I tend more towards uh, hypomanic yes. and depressive episodes. I don't have super high manias where I'm, you know, talking a mile a minute and, and risky behavior, some of those more stereotypical things, my manias. Mm-hmm more of a hypo, so kind of like a medium level where I would just not need very much sleep, accomplishing a lot, um, mm-hmm. you know, committing to new projects, all that kind of stuff. People, but, people like to be hypomanic. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. They, but it, with me, it came, it came with an inevitable nosedive crash. To Not just to normalcy, to depression. Yeah, to depression and, and suicidality, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that so, was persistent. And that's important to talk about to people. Whenever people are bipolar, manic depression is the old uh, term. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, they only present with depression. That's only right. for years. That's the only time we'd see them or hear about them. Because you spend so whenever. much more time right. in depression right. than in those other phases. Yeah. So some people are manic for days to weeks to months at mm-hmm. a time, and we don't we don't hear from them because they're having a good time. Yeah. I call it extra energy that gets you into trouble. But sometimes it's not that much trouble. Mm-hmm. You're spending money or hypersexually mm-hmm. meeting people and that you don't know their names and having sex with them or buying stuff. So that's manicky. That's sometimes uh, more more bipolar type one but we can mm-hmm. see bipolar type two sure. but uh but the problem is we never so we met for years we'll miss a manic episode or, mm-hmm. or several manic episodes until we hear from the, the patient or witness it with a patient right. or hear from their relatives but it's actually like you said don't need much sleep. it's not you can't sleep mm-hmm. you don't need much sleep because you have lots of things are bouncing around your head how to start how to lose weight and start a company and yeah. go back to yeah. school and get married right. and, you know, all these things are just kind of popping in your head all the time you have it there's so much coming out of your head that you practically have to make notes so many great ideas are, yeah. are coming out of your head and stuff like that uh, but the problem is, is that exactly what you said, it doesn't go back to normal. Um, you go back to depression and, and sometimes suicidality and can't get out of bed. So I was yeah. having these like yo-yo cycles basically mm-hmm. for like, like you know, a- after I returned from from college, like, like 19 to 26 or so basically mm-hmm. when I came to for, for ketamine mm-hmm. where I would have, you know, several months of like kind of like hypomanic energy where I would get a new job mm-hmm. and then I would like work my butt off and become the star of the show and get promotions and take on more hours and take on more responsibilities yes. and I would be able to sustain that level of work for max 12 months. Yes. And then a huge crash would happen and I would need to take you know, either temporary leaves of absence or longer term leaves of yes. absence. And then I would exhaust my leave mm-hmm. from the job yes. and then have to resign. Right. And so I repeated that pattern like three or four times in my early sometimes. 20s. Yeah. It was and and I thought it was just like a personal failing, right. you know, that like if I could just get it together, like eventually I'm going to get it right one of these days. Yes. Um, but really was like my, my bipolar was so out of control and the things, the expectations for high functioning that I had of myself were so unrealistic and Mm -hmm. so unsustainable that I was just, I was keeping myself trapped in this cycle. 
We see, yeah, we see this a lot with uh, adult children of alcoholics and other people who are obsessive and perfectionist. Uh, is that they're very people pleasing, high achieving, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it, they burn they burn out, um, uh, uh, and it's not because people are asking them to stay late and do extra right. stuff, but they bring it on themselves because they're smart and they're capable mm-hmm. and they have energy, and so they're willing to get, you know jump in with both feet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you finally said, you know, you couldn't do school. Was it was was you couldn't manage school? Uh, you got severely depressed. Yeah. So I had tried, you know, I um, through the the those work periods, I was trying to at least you know do a couple of classes a semester mm-hmm. at community college. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was able to complete a few, um, but really, kind of right after I got married, basically, I guess it was twenty six or twenty seven when I got married. Um, twenty seven, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just decided like, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. Like yo, yo, I can't yo. work. Right. I can't work full time. And it was, the th- and it was like, it was one of those situations where if I was really honest with myself and thought about like what it felt like quitting my job and just like taking a break mm-hmm. felt like the only Right. Relief. The yeah. only possible relief. You just couldn't have like, a long weekend. I, I just vacation. could. Yeah. Right. I could never catch back up. I could never. Um, feel like I got a full gulp of air, you know? Right, and you'd never achieve the same stuff that you were able to before you exactly. crashed. Exactly. And so you'd not meet your own expectations. Yeah, exactly. So when I, you know, when I came to the ketamine clinic, I had, you know, recently made that choice. And mm-hmm. so was not working, was newly married, was feeling like a total failure. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and how, how how significant, I know everybody's very, uh, varies widely on how people respond to any mm-hmm. medicine or any dose of any medicine or combination. How did ketamine affect you and how could you tell? Um... I, I like to describe it to people like it it gave me traction. Mm-hmm. So for years, I just felt like I was just spinning my wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially during depressive episodes that it w- I just could not make any forward progress. Mm-hmm. Like I would try to exercise or try to take a class or mm-hmm. try to make art or try to spend time with friends. And I could just it just didn't get me anywhere. And so I was, you know, just stuck with these chronic, persistent, you know, self-hating thoughts, the rumination over my failures, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so ketamine helped me. Uh, the, the Over the first couple of infusions, I noticed a difference in my energy level uh-huh. um, and was able to, like, you know, get up and accomplish a few things during the day. Um, and then be you know kind of after i i finished my series like i was starting to just feel like i i was getting some positive forward momentum so a series of six infusions just mm-hmm. for clarify six infusions twice a week for three weeks yep. so it's not very not very long no it's not very weeks. long yeah, yeah. So and i think i did a few boosters after that so like mm-hmm. within the in the next like three months or so i think i did a couple of boosters yeah these are iv boosters of mm-hmm. ketamine that we dose according to body weight then we go by your symptoms of, right. to adjust it after we first start you on a certain uh, dose for body weight yeah mm-hmm. and it wasn't um it certainly wasn't like a it wasn't a silver bullet no. and it wasn't like a, a light switch you know where all of a sudden i was i was cured and i was back to normal and right. da 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 but um, for the for the first time, I really felt like I was able to start integrating some of the things that I had been working on in therapy for all of these years. Um, what type of what type of topics or materials or 
subjects. Yeah. So, I mean, like not working and doing intensive ketamine treatment, which, you know, causes kind of a dissociative experience. Some of those dissociations really helped to, um, gave me like an outside perspective Mm -hmm. on myself and on my, Mm -hmm. um, on my life and on my problems. And I kind of came away with it feeling like maybe, maybe I'm not the craziest person to ever exist. Yeah. It's and, an important, yeah, aha moments like yeah. that are rare. And, you know, maybe I can have a some sort of happiness in yes. my life yeah. and get in control of this in some way, yes. you know? So um, one of the biggest changes for me was being able to really examine my expectations mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Um I had a lot of unpacking to do in in figuring out which of those expectations I needed to keep and which ones I needed to let go. Good point. And there were a lot that I needed to let go. Yes. And um, and by the way, nobody could tell you this because you would be weak if you took their advice and let go of certain yeah. certain goals or certain right. projects. Right, 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 you'd, right. Be, you'd be the weak one. Exactly. The other person giving me permission to let go of an expectation would just be them giving me a break. Right. I I had to give my perce- myself permission. Yes, you saw yourself differently. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, some of those things were just, you know, just the intense perfectionism, yes. you know. Um, obviously, you know, um, like working full-time for a corporation and being in leadership and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, commanding a high income or whatever, I I decided to unassign that from my my list of must-haves gotcha. in my life, yes. you know? Um, and I started, I decided to, um, to, you know, um, to say that my my expect just also to reframe my expectations uh-huh. away from achievement and more towards purpose and value. Oh, very important. Um, and so, some of those differences are so subtle and it can take a long time to really identify, but, That's right. um, you know, there was, there were a lot of expectations that I have for myself and for my marriage and for my, my life that sure. I realized were kind of assigned to me through the church sure. or through my upbringing. That's right. Um, all, all of us, by the way, not just you, but right. our, our, all of us have that version of that. Yes. Absolutely. So I had to really look at those and decide which ones of those were worth keeping and mm-hmm. um, which ones are going to serve me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and so the ones that I still hang on to are, you know, compassion and grace and service to other people and love towards other people. I still very much expect myself to uphold those values. Yes. Um, By the way, yeah. if, if people notice, you named everything not about yourself, you know, not about extra, you know, extra muscle mass or anything like that. You named about stuff that's external to you that is uh, that uh, helps with you in terms of relationships. Yeah. Oh, so for sure. Every one of those that you just named are, are positive relationship traits or goals. Yeah. I um, one of the beautiful things about being raised in this church community is that like there was a super strong focus on community and and relationships. Um, So I learned from a really young age to have deep conversations with people, to be open about my life, to be reflective and to encourage other people with words. So um, strong relationships were a really, really important thing to me all th- all the way through. And that's a lot of people feel like they have to dump their family, dump their, dump their faith, mm. et cetera, in order to survive, in order to flourish, in yeah. order to heal. 
and you were able to turn it in your technique, uh, your way into into lots of positive traits that you continue to carry today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that's that's not always. Uh, uh, it can't always happen that way sure. for a lot of people. Sometimes they have to cut the umbilical cord to whatever that was attached to that was difficult in their childhood, their youth, or mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, so um, you're doing well today. I am doing well and, um, <laughs> and uh God bless your husband because yeah. uh, he, he waded through quite a bit of this he with did. you. He did. He really did. He stuck it out through a lot. And, and my parents, too. That's right. My parents they're, were... They're the ones that love you from, from, from before you were born. Absolutely. When And, you know, I, I said earlier that, you know, if, like finding a great therapist and a great psychiatrist are really important. But also, like, I... Both of my parents, like, believed for me and through me yes. that this wasn't always going to dominate my life. Yes. Like, that there was going to be a time when I could find some peace and integration and, and it's important for people to hear this that sometimes all you can do is have grace of, of presence yeah absolutely that that your parents didn't prescribe medicines they didn't do yeah. this they didn't do that for you but they were present and they listened and they took your word uh, they 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 took your word for it they supported you mm-hmm. uh, um uh, and it's important because a lot of parents don't understand they're sometimes so lost they're, they're for themselves or their kids are so lost. They don't know where to start. Right. They don't know what to say. They don't know yeah. where to show up. Oh, for sure. Um, they, and so uh, d- d- you were very responsible in knowing your medicines and following up with your physician. Initially, you were quite young, but then eventually you've been, you've mm-hmm. been many years as an adult. Did your parents get involved? Anybody get involved to make sure you're taking your medicines, making sure that you're making appointments, keeping them, uh, went in with you to the therapist and stuff to make sure you're saying the right things? Um, uh, not the right things, but describing what reality was yeah. really away from the... the, the, the doctor's office i think i think early on they were more involved especially in managing my medications Mm -hmm. um my my mom was really determined to help me become an independent person you know so i mean like in in high school i was booking my own appointments you know if Ah, i needed to get to a dentist she had me call to make the dentist appointment you know Mm -hmm. she really wanted me to be independent in that way and that was you know, the, I I think I realized too that this was going to be a process that I was going to have to own. So you said something, and you and I do this a lot when we see our, our, we, our the patients. We love all our patients mm-hmm. at the claiming mm-hmm. clinic, but we recognize some of them have their own kind of uh, disability that they can't do something without, and something that yeah. you and I would think would be reasonable that they they they, they, have, they have competency to Absolutely, do it, yeah. but they haven't done it for such a long time. It's right. not been done. It's been done for, for them, them for such a long time. That's very scary to do anything mm-hmm. to. to, to to, to make a decision about about which doctor, if you want to go yeah. to the doctor, uh, if you're if the medicine is helping or not helping, um, uh, and so your mom did it kind of the way that that helps you even today that you're you're strong you're a strong person today. Absolutely, I'm yeah. grateful that she did because I you know right. we see a lot of um, we see a lot of people are really impacted by that kind of learned helplessness. You know, it yes. can re- it can be a hugely dysfunctional. Whenever you can't get out of bed, you really have to have people help you. Yeah, for the absolutely. Most basic, cook, yeah. cook for you, you know, et cetera. Oh, yeah. But, but eventually when you can't get out of bed, we uh, part of the healing process and part of becoming an adult, uh, part of the healing process is more independence, more self, self, uh, mm-hmm. self-respect, self self-worth that comes from being able to do stuff for yourself right. and being able to ask questions right. and be able to ask for help and obtain help and, and stick with the help mm-hmm. and follow through with the help. Well, wonderful. Is yeah. there something I haven't asked that's important to you that, that, that you think is important part of your story that our listeners may benefit from, both young and old? I, th- I mean, I think just... 
I just want to encourage people that are listening to this. Like I, I've been very privileged to have incredible resources, incredible family, incredible friends, great doctors, great therapists. Um, a lot of things have gone right for me, you know, to help me end up where I am now. Um, However, I I really do think that there is hope for a life beyond just a diagnosis, right? Um, I know how scary it is to hear the words bipolar disorder. It can be scary to hear PTSD or OCD Mm -hmm. or depression or anxiety disorder. All those things can be really scary. Um, But there is a tremendous amount of power in um, learning about yourself yes. uh, in order to manage difficult emotions, manage difficult things that you go through in your life, oh, yes. in order to turn that into something beautiful that you're proud of. Yes. You know, And I feel like I have a lot of, I'm lucky now at this point in my life where I'm able to make a lot of meaning out of what I've gone through, you know, creatively, you, professionally, whatever. And you help other people because of your story today. But certainly when you uh, do it just a few seconds at a time, when you talk to people a few minutes at a time yeah. in the office, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a, a added value and added hope. Um, I want people to know that um, that aha moments, insights come a lot of different ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Ketamine is one of them, but people with meditation, with prayer, with mm-hmm. exercise, with talk therapy have these insightful periods mm-hmm. that are uh, life-altering. Um, we know that if therapists give you the answer, uh, your parents give you the answer, your loved one gives you the answer mm-hmm. of what your problem, what you're struggling with, even if you believe them, you tend not to implement it. Yeah. And certainly if you implement it, it, won't, it doesn't tend to stick. You don't tend to follow through. So that self-discovery, accelerated by ketamine in this case, but mm-hmm. that self-discovery, and you laid the groundwork, you and your family laid the groundwork for self-discovery because you were open to, to thinking and open to talking mm-hmm. is an enormous, enormous benefit. For sure. Uh, gave you um, your, your mindset, your, your intention uh, was already set well in advance of coming to see, get ketamine. Correct. Uh, what a powerful story. Thank you for, for talking to me one-on-one. I know a lot of people are going to be interested in, in understanding and listening. They may have questions uh, for us um, and they may have comments. Uh, uh, once again, we, your story and my, my what I've uh, added uh, uh, does not re- reflect the entirety of depression or bipolar disease. Certainly or, not. Um, and so this is why people need good primary care, care uh, primary care practitioners, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, uh, physicians. A lot of them tend to have to have good amount of experience. It's not enough just to come out of training. You have to have quite a bit of experience mm-hmm. to handle something as complicated as, as this uh, and do it well. Um, mental health professionals are invaluable, excellent, yeah. any, uh, are invaluable. Some of them are available uh, through telemedicine nowadays right. if you didn't have somebody located close to you. Um, insurance is helpful. It's not mandatory. I think that's you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. Insurance smooths, uh, smooths the um, lubricates the tracks to, sure. so you can get 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 what you need but it's uh but you can get uh, reasonable care without insurance um uh on medicare and medicaid etc um uh, there's always more to talk about thank you for sharing anything you uh and what's our what's our website what's our uh, website what's our email yeah our email address is not your doc pod at gmail.com not your doc pod at gmail.com please send us questions and feedback 
Vanessa, I appreciate everything that, uh, who you are and everything that you that you do and bring to our, our practice, our, our clinic. Our patients are better for it. And so and I and so am I. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tigers. This previous podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.